Hey, Cracked fans. With the summer months just around the corner, we know all of you are beginning to think about how you can best maximize your chances to improve your game with the warm weather. Well, thankfully, we here at Cracked Rackets are so excited to tell all of you about the 254 Tennis Camp happening this summer at Baylor University. Now, over the course of three weeks in June, starting June 12th through the 16th and ending June 26th through the 30th, you'll have the opportunity to learn from from some of the best coaches in the business in an all-encompassing tennis experience. You'll have the opportunity to improve each and every part of your game, whether that be on the singles court, whether that be on the doubles court, through drilling, through point play, match play as well. You'll also, of course, receive a free t-shirt for participating in the camp, but also have the chance to see yourself broadcasted as our Crack Rackets team will be providing coverage of the final day each week at this 254 tennis camp. Again, you'll have the opportunity to learn from some of the best coaches in the business. I promise Coach Michael Woodson and the Baylor team going to make it an extraordinarily enjoyable time. How can you get signed up today? Well, you can learn more information by visiting the Baylor website by going to baylor.edu slash athletics slash tennis camp. Again, that's baylor.edu slash athletics slash tennis camp to sign up today. Now, this camp open to any and all entrants, but limited only by age, number, grade level, and or gender. Again, you can learn more about this camp by going to baylor.edu slash athletics slash tennis camp today. Don't miss out, folks. Going to be three very exciting, fun weeks of tennis down at Baylor University. Be sure to sign up for the 254 Tennis Camp happening at Baylor today. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, May 31st. Now that's how the quarterfinals should look at a Grand Slam. The 2022 French Open just delivered us perhaps the Tuesday of all Tuesdays in major history. So many headlines for us to cover on today's show. So much so that it is going to be a two-mini break Tuesday. And I realize I promised that to all of you listeners yesterday. I apologize for not following through, had some audio difficulties on my end. It would take roughly two and a half hours to break down where things stand in both the men's and women's singles draws at the 2022 French Open. As such, going to divide today's mini breaks into two parts. On this show, I want to focus on the men's action. In particular, Rafael Nadal winning battle number 59 between himself and top seed Novak Djokovic in dramatic fashion. Yes, Nadal was up two sets to one. But as Novak took that 4-1 lead in the fourth set, it felt like the fifth set was destiny. And it felt like the fitness of Novak Djokovic may help him over the top against a quietly peaking Rafael Nadal. But Look, in the end, there's a reason Rafa is 110-3 and overall, and I actually want to retract that previous statement. It was not quiet peaking. Rafael Nadal was spectacular from start to finish in his four-set victory.
victory over Novak Djokovic. Rafa ex- uh, reaches a record-extending 15th semifinal at Roland Garros with his victory. Is obviously the favorite now to capture a 22nd major title, extend his lead to two slams in the race for the most men's Grand Slam singles titles in Open Era history. Of course, I want to break down the mechanics of Nadal's victory. Talk about how he dominated from the start with his serve plus one forehand combination, how his ability to find forehands throughout the course of the match ultimately allowed him to be the aggressor, ultimately allowed him to advance in four tightly contested sets. But of course, that was not your only highlight popcorn men's match of the day. If you watched the precursor to tonight's main event, and yes, we can talk about that night session here today as well, the pros, the cons of it, but you could make an argument that the better match in terms of quality first start to finish, actually, you cannot make that argument, but you could argue that the final set of Alex Zverev's four-set victory over Carlos Alcaraz was as high of a level as anything we saw in Rafa Djokovic. Simply put, the match was that good, and ultimately, the third-seeded German may have earned the biggest victory of his career, his first top-10 victory at a slam as he knocks off the ascending Carlos Alcaraz advances back to the Roland Garros finals. I want to talk about why Zverev looked like a six foot six tennis player today. The dominance he displayed on serve, his ability to bail himself out of so many difficult situations, whether it was going big out wide on the ad side, big wide or big T, uh, excuse me, big wide or T on the ad side, big wide on the deuce. He was just able to put himself in advantageous positions and then, again, extend the match physically to the point where when Carlos Alcaraz began to spray unforced errors, as he did at many times in the match, Zverev was able to put himself in a place to capitalize on those errors. Again, two fantastic men's singles quarterfinal matches to break down. I'm also well aware we did not talk about yesterday's upsets yet on the men's side. Stefano Tsitsipas knocked off in four sets by the ascending Holger Runa. You heard Gil Gross on this podcast yesterday refer to Runa as a diet doctor, Carlos Alcaraz. Now, certainly both men reached the quarterfinals here. Carlos Alcaraz already the two masters titles. You could understand why Gil made that statement in jest, but look, the next gen 2.0's hopes now ride on Runa, who was sensational and showed a level of physicality that he had not yet uh, displayed in his career to knock off Pass in four sets. I want to talk about the steadiness of the young Dane, why he minimizes his, how I should say he minimizes his weaknesses on the court, why he sometimes displays video game, or why and how, and the importance of his video game-like movement that we see on court and why I absolutely think he can continue to advance in this tournament. Of course, the perhaps headline upset because, well, what was the bigger upset yesterday? That's, I suppose, the question for us we can also ponder on today's show. Was it Runa over Tsitsipas? Was it Chilich over Medvedev? Certainly the dominant fashion by which Chilich beat Medvedev was probably the more surprising of the two results. Chilich was top form yesterday in his straight set victory over Daniil Medvedev. And let's talk about how that serve, that forehand can continue to do damage in this tournament. And then what about the Ruse? I know we talked about Runa, but Rublev, Rude, they hold seed, advance to the quarterfinals. They're your top two seeds in the bottom half. And again, right there, one of Runa, Chilich, Rublev, Kasparud is going to be a 2022 French Open finalist. Ridiculous to even say that out loud. By the way, should Marin Chilich make the final of this French Open, he will have officially made the final of all four Grand Slams. I think winning the 
title in the era that he did, ascending the rankings, the consistency, the longevity. He probably will get into the Tennis Hall of Fame anyways. He puts that accomplishment, though, on his resume. It's probably undeniable. So again, we can talk about all of these things on today's show. Obviously, I'm well aware Jessica Pagula into the quarterfinals of the French Open, uh, Coco Goff into her first Grand Slam semifinal with her victory today. And, you know, for Goff to not only defend her quarterfinal points from last season to take that next step, reach the semifinals, look as just physically dominant as she did against someone playing as well as Sloan Stevens today. I want to talk about the implications of that. I want to talk about Shiantek dropping a rare set against Jung Ching, uh, Chin Wen in her round of 16 match. But again, if I talk about all of these things on the podcast, we're already six and a half minutes into this intro. This podcast will end up going two and a half hours. So we're going to divide things up. I'll focus on the immediate results here. Nadal, Djokovic, Alcaraz, Zverev, and then of course the bottom half of the quarterfinal draws. Then on mini break number two, you'll all receive. We're going to talk about everything on the women's side of the draw. Again, the typical parody we see unfold. Last year's French Open produced four first-time semifinalists. Should Pagula knock off Shiantek for the second consecutive year, the French Open would have produced four first-time semifinalists on the women's side. So that's going to be its own podcast on this show. We're going to focus on the men's singles action. And of course, the reason we're able to do that, the reason we're able to switch things up and be creative here at Crack Rackets, provide all of you listeners with the information you need, not just about the ATP and WTA tour level, but the challengers, the ITFs. We're so excited to get started with our coverage of the 2022 SoCal Pro Circuit, six ITF events in seven weeks, all in Southern California, all available to be watched from the semifinals onwards on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel. We're able to do all these things because of the support we get from all of you listeners and, of course, because of the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point who have been supporting players for a generation now with the best equipment at the lowest prices. And look, we saw the importance of string tension switching from the day session to the night session. We know the importance of tension as we switch from the spring to the summer as well. And if you need to update your strings, your tension, you just need a guiding hand to tell you what you should be doing out on court, our friends at Tennis Point have you covered. Again, they've also got the best equipment at the best prices. If you go to tennis-point.com right now, you're going to inevitably update your gear. When you do, use our promo code CR15. You'll get 15% off all sale items, free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls, tennis-point, symbol, not the spelling, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, let's get into it. Nadal Djokovic, 59. Let's just start with the obvious. Rafael Nadal turns 36 years old in three days. Novak Djokovic just turned 35 years old. These guys are producing maybe not as high of a level physically as they did in 2011 and 2012, but the quality, the efficiency, plus the physicality they're still each able to display These two have redefined what seems possible in men's tennis moving forward and this era of physicality that's emerging. Obviously, we see what Daniil Medvedev is able to do in three out of five sets on a hard court. We see what Carlos Alcaraz has done at his peak in a two out of three set match, three out of five set match. We saw what Zverev did today to outlast him, how physical that uh, that battle got. All of that 
Uh, all of that success, Holger Runa, the physicality he imposed in extending rallies against Stefano Tsitsipas, all of that is a direct descendant from the tennis we've seen from these two over the past 15 years. And again, Nadal Djokovic played for the first time at the 2006 French Open. At that 2006 French Open, Carlos Alcaraz was three years old. They're producing this quality of tennis 16 years later. It's the best rivalry in the modern era. I understand to some people, rivalry is such a subjective term because the significance of particular battles mean more to some than others. For instance, if you're an Andy Murray fan, the biggest rivalry in your life is Murray Djokovic, whether it was Djokovic beating Murray in in my opinion, the best match in tennis history, the 2012 Australian Open semifinals, three of the finest sets you will ever see. I admit, set four, not the best, uh, but I should say four of the five finest sets you'll ever see. You know, Murray couldn't get over that hump against Djokovic, and then he couldn't get over the Federer hump at, at Wimbledon, but then he beats Djokovic and, and on his way to the finals, beats Federer to capture that gold medal, beats Djokovic again to capture his first major title in the U.S. Open final, beats Djokovic again to capture that first Wimbledon title in the final 2013. Maybe that's the rivalry that means the most to you. Maybe it's just Federer-Nadal for Federer, who is you know winning three Grand Slams year after year after year. Finally, someone ascended who could challenge him, not only on the clay courts the way Rafa could, but then for Rafa to beat him in that Wimbledon final and, you know, for it to go five sets, kind of the peak of their rivalry, two athletes at the peak of their powers, maybe that's when you got into tennis and that's the rivalry that means the most to you. Maybe it's a women's rivalry, whether it was Serena Sharapova, despite how one-sided it was, that was sort of emblematic of Serena's dominance of the era. Maybe it's, again, a different sort of rivalry that, that you know, maybe you were prior to that, maybe you were early Celis versus Graf or Everett versus Navratilova. The point being, there have been many rivalries to transcend tennis history. There have been none more significant than the Nadal-Djokovic rivalry. You see the the outlines, the characteristics of their battles now leaking into the physicality and the play style of all of these ascending champions. And again, this is not a novel concept, but to see these two do battle was just such an extraordinary experience. And to see Rafa come out of the gates the way he did, he breaks Novak Djokovic in the first game of the opening three sets of this match. You know, again, he's up 1-0 in set number one, set number two, set number three. It just felt like Novak Djokovic was always chasing Rafa in this one. And you look at the rally analysis because, you know, so frequently we talk about the Rafael Nadal, you know, plus one combination, his ability to find on the ad side, the slice serve out wide, then the inside out forehand to the open space or the inside in forehand hits that ball behind you. You know, he was just so efficient with that play from the start, ruthless in the first set. And you look overall in set number one, Rafa, 14, uh, you know, plus four in the zero to four shot rallies, plus one in the five to eight shot rallies, plus two in the nine plus shot rallies. Rafa was better than Novak in every facet of the game in set number one. And even when Novak went on his runs down 3-0 in that second set, obviously he takes the second set 6-4 or to go up 4-1 in that fourth set. Rafa continued to attack. There was no wavering from Rafael Nadal. Now, certainly there was some sloppiness. You look for him in terms of the numbers in set number two. The unforced error count sort of jumped on him a bit for Rafa. You look overall in the match in terms of winners to unforced errors. He hits 57 winners against 43 unforced errors. In set number two, 21 winners against 19 unforced errors. Even then, he ends up plus two. 
the results in this match, the 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 outcome of each point was dictated by the level of Novak Djokovic, who simply put was too much of a roller coaster from start to finish in this match. And it's funny because you look at the final number, Djokovic 48 winners against 53 unforced errors. He didn't play poorly against Rafa. He just had to play well from start to finish, and he was unable to do that. And much of the credit goes to Nadal, who, again, 57 winners against 43 unforced errors against Novak Djokovic. Do you know how difficult that is to do? Do you know the sort of pressure physically Djokovic puts on you point after point after point? And Rafa never wavered. Yeah, the inside-out back, uh, inside forehand sprayed on him a bit in that second set. The backhand was a little bit flat, missed a couple of them in the net for Djokovic to take that 4-1 lead in the fourth set, but Rafa just kept plugging away. And I apologize that I'm not going in deeper depth. Here's the forehand Rafa hit at 4-1 to flip this script. I think we all know the things Rafael Nadal does well now uh, to put himself in successful positions on the court, but in particular today, it was Rafa's ability to execute and keep the ball away from the Novak Djokovic forehand. I Again, how frequently did we see Nadal pulling the backhand down the line and attacking the Djokovic backhand or, as always, feeling perfectly comfortable exchanging forehand to backhand cross-court exchanges with Novak? The only time he would attack the Djokovic forehand is if he was changing direction, going down the line, hitting inside out, being the aggressor, taking advantage of open space Novak had given to him. Now, to Novak's credit, in set number two in particular, he did such an exceptional job of finding opportunities opportunities to be aggressive on that forehand wing was so diligent with his footwork to find inside out forehand opportunities to open up the inside in and hit the heavy forehand to attack the Nadal backhand when Nadal was stretched in the corner now a couple of little things a from start to finish in this match one of the way you know one of the ways Djokovic has always kept Nadal honest is by incorporating the drop shot the drop shot was not working for Novak in this match. Rafa was tracking it down when Novak did manage to get it over the net, but far more frequently than not, Novak would just miss the drop shot into the net. That was one way Djokovic had to keep Rafa honest. The other way is to be aggressive with that forehand, to go big down the line, to take those opportunities to sneak forward. And far too frequently, Djokovic either A, fluffed the, the approach shot, you know, would miss it wide, miss it long, miss it in the net. And most emblematic, perhaps, of this match was in that, it was either start of the third or start of, the, I think it was the start of the fourth set where Djokovic has that forehand approach shot to the wide open court, eclipse the net tape. I'm pretty sure it's first game of the fourth set, clips the net tape. Rafa ends up having plenty of time to get there, hits an easy passing shot, and Djokovic slams his racket in anger at the net tape. Just far too frequently, he would have the opportunity to approach, and he'd either baby it and coddle it, and Rafa would get an opportunity at a pass, and you look for Novak in this match. He was 26 of 41. That's a 63% conversion rate at the net, but it felt like all 15 of those passes for Rafa just stung particularly hard and put that thorn in the Novak side. At the same point, Again, I don't understand the concerns about the night match for Rafael Nadal. His forehand is going to rip through any court. I don't care if it's nighttime at Indian Wells. I don't care if it's a moist night in at Roland Garros. We saw it when they played in the fall in those cold conditions when Rafa didn't drop a set and steamrolled his way to that 2020 Roland Garros title played in September. And again, 
Who had the biggest weapons in this match? It, or what was the most successful play? It was Rafael Nadal with the serve plus one forehand. And you look for Rafa in this match in total again, or you look at the rally analysis in this match uh, in total. For Rafa wins 18 more points than Novak. He's plus eight in the zero to four shots, plus three in the five to eight, plus seven in the nine plus shot rallies. Rafa was better across the board. It started in the plus one game or the plus two. You know, again, if you want to go zero to five shot rallies, Rafa is still plus 10 in that category. It was on his terms from the start. He was the one dictating from inside the baseline, winning the battle of court positioning. And, you know, again, Novak's up 5-3, serving for that fourth set to extend it to a fifth. In that moment, I thoroughly believed that Novak Djokovic was going to flip the match and win it because physically, Djokovic was there. He was tracking down, extending rallies. Again, the majority of the time, 70-plus percent of the points are 0-4 to four shot rallies. In this match, it was a 50-50 split. Points that went 0-4 to four shots, points that went 5-plus. That's how physical this match became. That's the quality of tennis and Djokovic acknowledging I need to extend rallies. I need to make this match physical. I need to work Nadal that much further over in the court before I hit my approach shot because the margins are that thin and I have to be that perfect. And again, down 3 on the second set, Djokovic found that brick wall level. He found abilities and started landing more plus one forehands, being more precise, moving forward more to the net. He was exceptional. In set number two was really good to build that 4-1 lead in the third as well. But, you know, again, had a set point, blinked with an unforced error. Unfortunately, that was the problem for Novak. The plus one forehand just abandoned him too frequently in this match. And it never abandoned Rafa. When Rafa wanted to be on his front foot as he was in that tiebreaker, and obviously Novak plays a sloppy tiebreaker uh, to ultimately drop the match 7-4 uh, in that breaker in the fourth set. But credit to Rafa, who just kept the pressure on Novak from the start. And again, Rafael Nadal now, 110-3 at Roland Garros. It's not a 94% win percentage, not 95, not 96. He has won 97% of the 113 matches he's played at Roland Garros. He's made the quarterfinals 15 of the 18 times. I mean, at a certain point, what are we doing here? 15 of the 19. I, you know, I don't worry about the withdrawals. I think that stuff is stupid. So for 110 and three. 110 and 3. What are you 110 and 3 at in life? I am genuinely thinking. I have made eggs 113 times in my life. I, in particular, I'm a fan of the sunny side up eggs. I just enjoy the way the yolk runs across the bread. I just like scrambled eggs. What am I, a bodybuilder who needs to shovel things down? Or, you know, a 79 year old in a retirement home enjoying the powdered eggs in the home my grandchildren or my children put me in because they are clearly done dealing with my nonsense? No, I'm a Sunny side up, sunny side up, up egg sort of guy. That said, I've screwed up the yolks on at least three in my past 113 attempts, and it's just it's a remarkable level of success. And when you consider Rafael Nadal cracked a rib not that long ago, hadn't played the most matches leading into this uh, Roland Garros. He played Madrid. He played Rome. He played five total clay court matches heading into this Roland Garros. I think I just called the Wimbledon, excuse me, into this Roland Garros. Loses to Alcaraz, loses to Shapovalov. The Alcaraz match was fantastic tennis. The Shapovalov match, Rafa did not play his best and physically faded down the stretch in that third set. Physically, he was okay. 
80% in that FAA match. He found the brilliance. He found the physicality when he needed it up 4-3 in that fifth set. I did not read enough into his ability to find that gear in that moment. The gear was clearly still within him. He was just, again, maintaining his energy, understanding this fight with Djokovic was ahead. He emptied the tank in this match, you know, was on the gas pedal from start to finish, and that's what makes Rafael Nadal so exceptional. There is never any layoff, never any, you know, again, blinking, never any take his foot off the gas. It's constant pressure, and that constant pressure was enough to knock off a wavering but still very much in-form Novak Djokovic. Now, Rafa, back into the semifinals of Roland Garros where he belongs. The key thing being he has two days off before that match against Zverev, and that's where my qualm with the people who qualm with the night session begins because I understand foundationally why playing a match that ends after midnight isn't the most appealing for fans considering it's on a Tuesday and there are probably a lot of people in Paris or in the Europe time zone area who uh, are inconvenienced by a match being played at this time, a match that they want to watch when there's school or work or whatever it may be, obligations the next day. I understand if you have the ability to start the night night session, particularly a night session between these two before 8.30, you should absolutely take that chance start it no later than 7 7 30 at the latest that said I have no qualms with this match being played as a night session match this is the highlight match and it's in the quarterfinals which means it's going to fall during the week you want as many people possible to be able to attend that match in person to sell the tickets obviously you're go- if you're playing that match at night, it's going to start 7.38. But the big thing here is they have that day off. That's why you can afford to start the match as late as you did because it's not 24 hours. It's 48 hours now off the court, at least for Rafael Nadal. That's a victory. Certainly a victory. I mean, I mean, again, that's the luxury of this match in particular in a vacuum. Now, again, night session in general, why start that late if you can afford to start it at 7, 7.30 as they could have with this match? At the same time, more broadly, I enjoy the night session. There should have been more women's matches. I think I saw the stat that it was 10 men's, 2 women's. Obviously, that's unacceptable, particularly given the variance we've seen on the women's side of the draw. There have been times where the women's tournament's far more exciting uh, than the men's side. I don't think today was that day in particular today. Again, I think they got lucky with the schedule. I think the matches got better and better as as the session progressed. I mean, that said... I enjoy the night session. I enjoy tennis under the lights. I understand the logistical challenges. I understand the argument against it. In a moment when you have two days off for the men's quarterfinalists, you know, in this draw in particular, I have no, I do not feel particularly strongly, I suppose, about the match starting as late as it did. I also don't understand, again, why people were concerned about Rafael Nadal sitting shorter or having more difficulty ripping through the court at night. It's Rafael Nadal. That forehand is going to rip through any court in the world. If anything, it becomes more difficult for Djokovic to land the drop shots or drive the ball through the court. Rafael Nadal's top spins ripping through anything. And that's why Rafa ultimately, again, able to fight off a set point 
break back, extend the match to a fourth set breaker. He takes it 6-2-4-6-6-2-7-6. Again, the first set, the first four games of the match, I think, took 30 minutes. And again, the quality was just exceptional. And Djokovic dug himself too big of a hole. Uh, I mean, he was chasing Rafa the entire time. And that's the worst position to be in in sports because of how exceptional a front runner Rafael Nadal is, how ruthlessly efficient he is with his plus one plays inside out, inside in, just moving you around the court. It was Rafa at his best. And again, with 48 hours off, he talked about the difficulties, the pain he feels in his foot, how managing that is a constant struggle. Look, he's the favorite now to capture this 2022 Roland Garros title. And I blame myself for picking against him because I swore to all of you listeners that I wouldn't pick against Rafael Nadal at the French Open until he lost two years in a row. Now he lost last year. That took exceptional tennis from Novak Djokovic. There were flashes of exceptional from him today, but just not enough to knock off Nadal, who served up a double dose of Rafael Nadal in today's quarterfinal victory. And of course, Rafa now becomes the second oldest player, third oldest player, I believe, to reach the semifinals of Roland Garros, you look for him. Pancho Gonzalez, the legend, 40 years old in 1968. Federer, 37 years old when he made the semis back in 2019. Now a 35-year-old Rafa into the semis here in 2022. Here's the thing. Rafael Nadal will be challenged in the semifinal if the Alex Virov that shows up today shows up in that match as well. And simply put, in my opinion, this was the best victory we've seen from Alex Virov in his career. Now, I understand he's a multiple-time Masters champion. He's won two year-end championships. He's made a Grand Slam final before as well. He had never earned a top-10 win at a Grand Slam. He came into this quarterfinal despite being, what, five years? Carlos Alcaraz's senior, yeah, Zverev 25, Alcaraz 19, six years Alcaraz's senior. He came in as the prohibitive underdog, according to the tennis politique, and ultimately, you know, body politique, sorry, got to throw in some of those terms in there, show off that Michigan education. Zverev ultimately a 6-4-6-4-4-6-7-6 victory over Alcaraz, where he was broken just once, uh, excuse me, just twice in the entire duration of the match. And it starts in his 5-4 service game in that first set. You look for Zverev again. How many times and in that, you know, in that set there was one break of serve between each of the players and, you know, Zverev really didn't face a single break point outside of his first service game of the match until going up 5 uh 5-4. How many times have we seen Zverev comfortably broken? in those sorts of situations where he just throws in a double fault or, you know, throws in just a sitting second serve that opponents can capitalize on. That didn't happen in his first set 5-4 service game. And you look for Zverev again in that first set for him to hold 5-4 in the fashion that he did. You know, there was some drama, certainly. And again, for Zverev in particular, he goes up 30-love, a couple of big first serves, but then, you know, floats in some second serves and misses the first serves and allows Alcaraz to play on his front foot. And all of a sudden, it's 30-40. Alcaraz is leading. What does Zverev do? 30-40 point, massive first serve out wide, you know, ultimately, again, able to uh, open up the court for himself uh, and fight off a break point with a big plus one shot. So again, now we're back to deuce. What happens after that? You know, there's an unforced error 
from Alex Vierev, or I should say a forced error out of Alcaraz off of a big return. What does uh, Vierev do to fight that off? Another big plus one serve, another big plus one ball to get back to deuce. Then another big first serve from Alex Vierev to set up the add point. Zverev holds for the 6-4 game with three big first serves to dig himself out of the jam. Now you move over to set number two, 5-4. Alex Vierov is leading again. Had yet to be broken uh, thus far in that in that second set. Alcaraz puts the pressure on him after you know. By the way, you know Alcaraz. How does he able to do it? Just again goes up love thirty this time in the five four service game of Alex Vierov. And what is Vierov able to do? Just able to scrap his way through. Whether it's a big first serve out wide on the love thirty point to set up the plus one forehand, a massive serve out wide again for thirty all. Zero that throws in a double fault for 30-40 and faces a couple of break points. Or excuse me, doesn't throw in the double fault for 30-40, but throws in an unforced error for 30-40 and faces a couple of break points, which he saves off with big first serves. Again, throughout the course of this match, when Zverev needed to find big first serves, he found them. And you look for the stats in this match, he wins 71% of his first serve points, wins 73% of those first serves against the number one returner on the ATP Tour. And again, Alex Virov did not get broken until 4-5 down in that third set. And here's the thing. When Zverev got broken, down 4-5 in the third set, you felt like here are all the ghosts of Christmas past emerging once again. And Carlos Alcaraz struggled throughout the course of this match. 46 winners against 56 unforced errors. You look for him in particular in sets number one and two. You know, he makes 16 of his 56 unforced errors in set number one. In set number two, another 16 unforced errors. So 32 of the 56 in the first two sets of the match. Could not find a backhand line to save his life. And, of course, how do you attack Alex Vera if you get deep balls deep into his forehand? He'll ultimately leave that ball short, give Alcaraz the chance to run around that ball, hit ad, uh, forehands from advantageous positions on the court. Alcaraz struggled to do that because he struggled to change direction. Could not find his rhythm on the backhand line. That started leaking into his confidence on the backhand cross just wasn't particularly confident running around that ball to find forehands either because he was spraying with that ad side forehand, which is, of course, the bread and butter for Carlos Alcaraz. And you could argue there's no scarier thing in tennis right now than Carlos Alcaraz loading on the ad side of the court, waiting to do something with a forehand. And yet, and, and again, he started to find he did not play particularly well in sets one and two. And credit to Zverev, who just was lacing backhands from the corners of uh, from that ad side corner of the court. The depth he's able to generate, the backhand lines he's able to find, the passing shot he hit to break Alcaraz four five four in that fourth set. I mean, again, there are things. Alex Virov does on the court that you just remember, and I've said this before, I think there are five to ten minutes in every match where he looks like the best tennis player I've ever seen because that combination of size, fluidity, and skill, there are just few players who can do the combination of things Alex Virov can do on a court, you know, vacillate between serve bot and exceptional physical presence, you know, again, this fluid athlete, athlete and the, the athleticism he's able to display. Zverev threw the kitchen sink at Carlos Alcaraz, went into brick wall mode, tracked everything down. There were a couple of cross-court backhand winners Zverev hit from neutral positions on the baseline that you're just like, you and Djokovic, you're the only two people who can hit the backhand that way. And yet again, 
when Alcaraz broke for 6-4 in the third set, you just felt like, here come the demons. And, you know, when's the serve going to start giving up? And there were five consecutive games where Zverev went up 30-love on serve. In four consecutive, he threw in 30-love double faults. He lost that 30-love point in five consecutive games. You know, you just felt like those little sloppy errors were going to begin to catch up to him and that Alcaraz was slowly finding his range. But then Zverev breaks for 5-4 and Zverev has the opportunity to serve for the match in the fourth set. And what happens right away in that 5-4 game? You know, again, right off the bat, it's a couple of big winners uh, from Carlos Alcaraz to build a big hole and, you know, go up uh, love uh, love 30, excuse me, on, on Zverev. Then it's a, it's a ridiculous backhand return winner to go up love 40. And all of a sudden, you know, again, unforced error from Alcaraz, but Zverev rolls in a second serve. Alcaraz plays aggressive tennis. He gets the break for five all. At that point, you're saying there's the Zverev moment. Alcaraz has captured the momentum. This match is over. Guess what? It wasn't. Does Alcaraz hold for 6-5? Absolutely. What does Zverev do in response? Holds at love for 6-all. Finds two massive first serves to win a couple of free points. And again, gets himself to the tiebreaker. Now, 6-5, Carlos Alcaraz has a set point. And, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, certainly he misses the inside-out in for, uh, inside forehand. That's a shot. It was a routine rally ball. That was an unforced error. That was the sort of day it was for Carlos Alcaraz. But you look for Zverev, who puts himself up 5-4 with one of those ridiculous down-the-line passing shots and continues to find you know, passes and find big first serves and was physically right there from start to finish and found big first serves, you know, win down uh, throughout the course of this match. The serve bailed him out, and usually it's the serve that does Alex Zverev in. And again... As Alcaraz's level raised in sets three, set four, Zverev was able to match that with his physicality by being willing to extend rallies. And then you look at the rally analysis in this match, Zverev was plus 16 in the zero to four shot rallies. He dominated with the serve plus one. He was also minus three in the five plus shot rally. So even in the with, as the match, as the points got more physical and Alcaraz was able to find four hands and get Zverev stretched across the court. You know, Zverev was able to thrive, and Zverev was able to match that intensity. And there were times when the only thing working for Carlos Alcaraz in the match was the drop shot and his ability to take advantage of Zverev's defensive court position and keep him honest and force errors or force easy, you know, second passing shot combinations after that drop shot. I think Carlos Alcaraz like lost like three points on the drop shot against Alex Zverev, but I believe two of those three came in that fourth set tiebreak. And just again, it was one of those days where to live by the drop shot die by the drop shot is a thin margin and unfortunately Carlos Alcaraz did not play his best and you could tell he came out of the gates nervous in this match was spraying and producing unforced errors that quite frequently we had not seen uh, quite frankly excuse me we had not seen from him throughout the course of his 14 match win streak on the clay that said Credit to Zverev, who put himself in a position to capitalize on those unforced errors. You look for Zverev now. You know there have been eight majors played since pan since the pandemic began uh, since pandemic play began in August 2020. Zverev's made the fourth round of all eight majors. He's made the semifinals now at four different majors as well. Four of the eight. 
he's into the semifinals. Obviously, just the one final for him at the U.S. Open. He loses five sets to Tsitsipas last year uh, in the semifinals of Roland Garros. Drops that match uh, in five sets in the U.S. Open to Novak Djokovic as well. Look, he's got the king of clay. In Rafael Nadal, and you look for Zverev in his head-to-head, though, 3-6 and six against Rafa overall has beaten Rafa on clay before, albeit on the slightly quicker clay courts in Madrid. Rafa has beaten him uh, on the clay courts many a times, of course, as well, but look— Lefty, who's uh, or excuse me, being six foot six, foot six with the backhand Zverev has and the ability to win free points on serve like he did against Alcaraz, there's a blueprint there for Zverev to pull off his upset. Now he's going to have to play at the same level he did and serve in particular at the same level he did today against Alcaraz. But if he's landing first serves at the rate he did and having that success with his first serve, there's absolutely no reason. Again, he's going to have to have if he goes plus fifteen in the plus one category against. Rafa as well. He will absolutely be in the match. Both guys get the two days off. Again, will the nerves creep in for Alex Virov? They did not today. This was his highest level performance under the pressure, under the gun. Again, fumbled at the end of that third set, served for the match, got broken by Alcaraz at the end of the fourth, yet able to bounce back and get out of the match in four sets. In my opinion, it's the most impressive victory of his career. And by the way, with the Djokovic loss, Alex Virov now has a legitimate shot at ascending to world number one. In fact, I believe if he wins the title here at Roland Garros, he will indeed become the world's number one, uh, the world number one player. I mean, look, for Zvira of the record, he's now 69 and 16 in his last 52 weeks. It's an 81% win percentage. That's elite of the elite threshold when you're winning over 80% of your matches over a 52-week stretch. You know, again, Djokovic, Federer, Nadal, their best seasons live in the 85% plus range. That's elite of the elite. But 80% plus, you're talking Stefan Edbergs. You're talking Boris Becker type primes, Jim Couriers, what they were able to do. Now, he's 109 and 30 since... Again, pandemic play resumed in August of 2020. That's a 78% win percentage. He has the one slam final. He has the four semifinals in his past eight majors. He doesn't have the slam title. He joked about it afterwards saying, well, I told Carlos at the net, I better win one of these French Opens before you start winning all of them. Guess what? There's truth to that joke. You better win. The window is open right now for Alex Virovin. Coming off of that four-set match and just physically where Nadal is, if he's ever going to beat Nadal at Roland Garros, now's the time. Again, that's the most uh, – and always worth mentioning with Alex Virov. Go read Ben Rothenberg's reports in Slate, in Racket Magazine about the allegations he faces of abuse off the court of his former girlfriend. They are significant and remain unaddressed by the ATP Tour. If they are going to continue to let him play – we're going to continue to have to talk about him. And again, this is the sort of Zverev that reminds everyone, oh yeah, this is why everyone had him pegged as a future world number one. But again, those were your two quarterfinal results here on Tuesday. Two splendid matches. I suppose the quick postmortem on Carlos Alcaraz, 19 years old, played bad, you know, did not play well today by any standard for Carlos Alcaraz still found himself one point away from forcing a third set a uh, fifth set excuse me against a top five player in the world he won another master's title here uh 
at the in uh, won another Masters title, excuse me, during this clay court portion of the season, has solidified himself as a top 10 player in the world. Carlos Alcaraz is currently second in the points race, and if Zverev wins this French Open title, he'll still only be 170 points ahead of Carlos Alcaraz. Carlos Alcaraz has been one of the five best players in the world this season. He will, again, not playing his best. He almost beat a fellow top five player in the world. If you are looking into the, and there's no denying, he definitely came out tight uh, at the start of this match. And, you know, again, he did find solutions, whether it was incorporating the serve and volley, utilizing the drop shot, given the success he was having with it. He found ways to have success in this match despite not playing his best. This is the ultimate data point for Carlos Alcaraz to take in, to learn from as we look towards Wimbledon, where... Given how compact some of his ground strokes are, how well he moves, how well he attacks and moves forward, how comfortably he is hitting the serve and working things like serving and volleying and opening up court space for himself, is there any reason he isn't a top five favorite heading into Wimbledon as well? Despite the lack of grass court matches on his resume, I still think most of us are going to have him in our top five. So I'm still buying all your stock if you're for some reason selling it on Carlos Alcaraz. The man is... Is is starbound. He's going to have success in the future. Just again, came out too shaky, and Zverev was too good today and made him pay. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With that said, those are your quarterfinals. And again, we're 40 minutes in. This is why I had to divide up the men's and women's podcast. Let's move on now to the bottom half chaos and some quarterfinal predictions on what I expect to see happen in the men's draw on uh, on Wednesday. Excuse me. You look and start with Holger Runa, who one of the upsets of the tournament, certainly for Runa as he knocks off number four seed Stefano Tsitsipas, 7 5 3 6 6 3 6 4. And after Tsitsipas struggles in his first match, you know, down two sets to love to Musetti and, you know, struggles again in his second match as well, he'd finally played a good match and just blitzed Mikhail Emer and seemed to finally be finding peak aggression and peak form on the clay. And then Holger Runa just introduced all sorts of doubts to Stefano Tsitsipas, who, let's be clear, did not return serve well throughout the course of this match. And it says 51 winners against 33 unforced errors for Tsitsipas in the match. That's being far too generous to Holger Runa. The amount of missed backhand returns or missed shanks or just, you know, again, defensive backhands that were left short. Tsitsipas was bad on the move in this match, and that's a credit to Holgaruna, who just kept moving the ball around the court and so smooth and such a fluid athlete. His on-the-run backhand is just exceptional. His ability to hit that ball, whether it's defensively down the line, whether it's to beat you to the spot and take it early on the rise down the line, which he was able to do to help consolidate his break and solidify that lead in the fourth set. I mean, again, Holgaruna was 
was the front runner for the majority of this match and just his ability to take advantage of anything Tsitsipas left short. And again, I don't think Runa hit two balls in the same, uh, three balls in the same direction in this match at any point of the rally. And you look for Holger Runa, who hits a ridiculous 54 winners against 38 unforced errors in this match. You look at the rally analysis, Holger Runa plus one in the zero to four shots against Tsitsipas. That just can't happen. If you're Stefano Tsitsipas, who served plus one forehand, on his best days is a top three combination on the ATP Tour. Runa out plus one to him by one point. Of course, the more physical the points got, and the margins were pretty thin. 129 total points for Runa, 123 for Tsitsipas, despite the match going only four sets. Runa was just there in every point by every method uh, you want to measure it by. And again, for Holger Runa, who I don't think has a particular weapon of a first serve, but hits his spots extraordinarily well. He made 70% of his first serves, 165% of those points. And again, his ability to go out wide on the do side to open up the down the line forehand, his ability to go into the body of Tsitsipas and then just constantly change directions with his plus one ball on the ad side. He kept Tsitsipas guessing, and prevented Tsitsipas from finding a rhythm. Again, both Holger Runa and Carlos Alcaraz, this is why Gil Gross's joke of diet Dr. Alcaraz about Runa isn't particular isn't untruthful is how many drop shots did Runa throw in in this match just to, whenever Tsitsipas was trying to cheat back and give himself more time on that backhand backswing Runa said okay I'll take the court positioning and I'll throw in a drop shot and then that drop shot backhand passing shot combination for Runa when he goes drop shot backhand line it's just special and you know again move the ball extraordinarily well now again for Stefano Tsitsipas who in theory you know only gets outplayed by nine total points in this match. And just you look in terms of breaks of serve, Tsitsipas able to break three times, Runa able to break five. This, you know, Tsitsipas actually wins 49 receiving points to Runa's 48. When Tsitsipas was on his front foot and asserting himself with the forehand, that was the biggest weapon in on the court. Tsitsipas just wasn't consistent enough with that weapon, wasn't able to find positions to be aggressive in his return games. And again, that's a credit to Runa, who disrupts your rhythm, takes away what you want to do best, and really doesn't have a glaring vulnerability to attack anymore as that forehand has gotten more consistent. I also think Runa has video game-like moves movement on uh on this clay court, just flies around the court so comfortable on the slide, slides into his shots, not out of them. I mean, credit to Runa, who's floor moving forward. I mean, the guy is already in the top 50 in the live rankings. You look for Holger Runa, the 19-year-old now up to a new career-high live ranking of 28 with his result here this week, 21st in the points race. When's the next time we see Holger Runa drop out of the top 30, barring injury? <sighs> 20. I, you know, I was joking about this. I did a tennis bets spaces on Twitter with Rob Similcare. You know, I said 10 years from now, Hogaruna is still going to be peaking. And he was like, no, 10 years from now. I was like, well, 10 years from now, he's going to be 29 years old. He actually will be at the peak of his powers in a decade. I mean, maybe we, barring injury, we may not see him fall out of the top 30 until 2030. 35. Like Again, that's just how solid he is foundationally. And just, you know, again, as he improves his physicality, gets stronger, the cramping issues, which have been his biggest issues, go away. Hogarun's a stud. And I know he's got some troubled things in his past as well. But given, you know, he won his first ATP title here during this clay court season, 
it's sort of like the Davidovich quarterfinal last year where you knew he was capable of this level. Just maybe this was a little bit soon still. He took advantage of a playing poorly Stefano Tsitsipas and advances to the first quarterfinal of his career. And look, on the flip side, that's a bad loss for Stefano Tsitsipas. There's no doubt about that. The fact that, um, you know, the fact that Tsitsipas was just unable to, uh, unable to do much of or just do much of anything through the struggles and find defensive ways or just ways to maybe roll in the backhand or mix in the slice and just get things to neutral it was troubling for Stefano Tsitsipas who certainly continues to look good when he's on his front foot and attacking with the serve and the forehand but I mean can Hulk, does Hogaruna really have the weapons to hurt Tsitsipas with? No, he hurt him with his relentlessness, with his consistency. And at this point of his career, that's a match where Tsitsipas, even if he's not playing his best, much like Alcaraz almost did against Zverev, and to, be, to Tsitsipas's credit, he almost did against Runa, has to find a way to problem solve his way through that match, whether it's just making it a track meet, slowing things down for himself. And there was just no adjustment to be made for Tsitsipas. That continues to be a problem, but credit to Hogaruna to, who advances in four sets and now plays a much more informed Kasparud. Kasparud 6-2-6-3-3-6-6-3 over Hubi Hercats. You could tell just, again, mentally what getting to this quarterfinal round and getting over that hump meant to Rude with his victory. And for him to beat Sinego in five sets, not playing his best, he played much more disciplined tennis against Hubi Hercats. Just fired for heavy forehand after heavy forehand cross court into that Hercots forehand wing and minimized his unforced errors. Again, Kasparud, 42 winners against just 19 unforced errors against Hubi. Made that match high percentage. And honestly, it was a park the bus sort of match. He found the play that works. Heavy topspin, push Hercots behind the baseline. You can be the aggressor. Hubi wasn't able to do quite enough to change the dynamic. Almost did. You know, again, wins that third set and was up a break early in the fourth as well. But then Casper steadied the ship and just, again, rolling backhand after uh, rolling forehand after rolling forehand or rolling backhand down the line. Just, you know, continued to extend that match physically. And I mean, look, given his success on the clay courts last year in lieu of playing the Olympics, he goes and wins whatever it was, 12 or 13 straight matches, three straight titles. He has the most pedigree on the clay of any of the four players remaining in the bottom half of the draw. If everyone is playing their best clay court tennis, well, Andre Rublev's got some pedigree as well. But in theory, Kasper Ruud should get a crack at his first Grand Slam final. And it's funny, if you would have asked all of us after Miami, can Kasper Ruud make the French Open final? We would have all said yes as he made that Masters final in Miami. That said, he played particularly poorly on the clay courts at, to start the season. You know, round of 16 Monte Carlo to lose to Dimitrov. Obviously, that was unexpected. And then loses Barcelona quarters to Carreno Busta. Loses Munich to Botic Vandesen Skulp. Madrid to Dusan Lajevic. Finally seemed to find his form in Rome, at, you know, getting to the semis before losing to Djokovic. But talk about a guy who made the decision to play a week before Roland Garros began and boy does that decision pay off as he ultimately earns a title gets four good wins under his belt in Geneva has slowly but surely worked his way into form and you can just tell physically now he's back in shape He's back locked in. He's moving comfortably, fluidly uh, across the court, hitting you know the backhand with better margin, better depth when he's on the run than he was a couple of months ago. And look, he's already beaten Holgaruna on the clay court in the clay court season. Beat Runa six and five, tightly contested match in Monte Carlo. 
the rude forehand is the biggest weapon on the court. And, you know, Casper Rude will be more disciplined than Stefano Tsitsipas. Won't allow Holgaruna to get away with some of the drop shots and some of the balls he floats in the middle of the court with just depth but not a lot of pace because that, you know, again, neutral is a gear that Casper Rude thrives on. And if you give him enough opportunities to attack with his forehand again, he it, with how heavy he hits that ball, it is the biggest weapon on the court. Now, I'll take the Holgaruna backhand over the Casper Rude backhand. I think Rude has more variety. His ability to hit slice, certainly uh, a bit better than Holger's, but the depth Holger's able to generate, the drive, the action on that shot, I think Holger's just a bit more dynamic off that wing. Again, this is a very good match. If Kasparu does not play his best tennis, Holgaruna will make him pay for it. But it's hard to pick the the 19-year-old in his first quarterfinal stage with how much tennis he's played here in the clay court season. You just do wonder again after that physical match against Tsitsipas. Yeah, that was the first set he's dropped in the tournament. But how much does he have left in the tank? Can he bring that level for a second consecutive week, a second consecutive match, excuse me, against a top 10 guy in Casparu? Now, again, Runa won the Munich title at the end of April, semifinals in Lyon before he lost a tight three-set match to Cam Norrie in the week leading up to this Roland Garros. He's proven, as I said at the start, he's a top 30 guy on the ATP Tour now, particularly on the clay courts. But... Can he do it for a fifth consecutive match? I'm going to lean no. I think Kasparut has continued to play better while still not playing his peak performance sort of match. I think this is the match where we see it. He's seen the Holgaruna ball before. He knows what to expect in this matchup. And given his confidence levels continue to increase, I think this is the match where we see it all click for Kasparut. So give me Kasparut to advance in quarterfinal number one. Quarterfinal number two, I mean, look, according to Tennis Abstract, Andre Rublev, 72.6% favorite over Marin Cilic. If Cilic is going to serve and forehand his way through the match as he did against Daniil Medvedev, I don't care who you are. It's going to be a nightmare to play Marin Cilic. And you look for him in that match, only made 56% of his first serves, but was 35 of 39 on first serve points again. It's a 90% conversion uh, conversion rate. He wins 58% of his second serve points and just... 33 winners against 22 unforced errors. He was on his front foot from the start and just stretching Medvedev to the open court every time through the first half of this match and then starting to open up and hit behind him and play short angles, play with spin. I mean, Marin Cilic was just fantastic in this match from start to finish. And look, Andre Rublev did not play particularly well. Ultimately advances, you know, one six six four two zero retirement victory over a clearly ailing Ionic Sinner. And it's so disappointing. I know we talked about this with Gil. I think he's what now, 28 and seven or 28 and eight with a couple of retirements due to injury or due to effects from COVID for Ionic Sinner. It's just been a disaster, you know, the year from hell for Sinner where every bad break you think he, he could avoid, he ends up getting, whether it's injuries or the COVID bug. I mean, Rublev started to find more margin, started to rein things in, got more consistent, and only was on court for an hour and a half. He'll certainly be extraordinarily rested at the same time, given how well Chilich played in the round of 16. Is he really going to sustain that going into the quarterfinals as well? I know the joke everyone's saying, well, he's never lost in a slam after he beats Jill Simone, given he beat him at the 2014 U.S. Open. That's a funny one-liner for a tweet, certainly. I mean, look, Rublev's got the sort of pace 
to expose Marin Cilic's lack of elite movement at this point of his career. Simply put, if Rublev's landing first forehands to the open court, it's going to be hard for Cilic to do much of anything with that ball because I don't think he moved particularly well against Medvedev. He was just on his front foot and in control the whole time. That said, the biggest weapon on the court is and biggest best combination is the Cilic plus one serve plus forehand combination. And if he executes it the way he did against Medvedev, yes, Rublev can have more sting than Medvedev does, and Rublev is certainly going to respond out of the corners with more gusto than a time Medvedev did. It felt like there were times when Medvedev with the slice returns was just prolonging his death. Rublev's either going to cut his own throat or hit the winner down the line, cut his own throat being the unforced error. I mean, I'm leaning Rublev in four sets just because I don't think Chilich is going to be able to sustain the level we saw, and that's part of the difficulties of getting older. And you look for Marin Chilich, who, for whatever it's worth, does turn 34 later this year. I mean, Chilich, for the record, back up to number 19 in the live rankings, 18th in the points race. He's had a good season to date, making round of 16 in Rome and losing to Zverev in three in Madrid, three-set loss to Baez in Estoril. You know, the three-set loss to Fritz in Madrid. Monte Carlo might be his one and only bad clay court loss of this clay court season. You know, his best wins, wins over Nori, Ramos, now Medvedev as well. He's been pretty consistent in this clay court season. Hmm, is that? But to ask him to do it for a second straight match, I just thought that was a peaking Marin Cilic. And again, if he follows that up with a second uh, consecutive performance, shame on me. Am I really going to pick? I mean, if you're going to pick the upset, I think Cilic is the upset to pick of these two. I just think it's tough to back the 19-year-old Runa. But I think we're going to get another battle of the Ruse. I think it's going to be Rude versus Runa, then Rune versus Ru- uh, Rude versus Runa, then Rude versus Rublev. I'm going to take Andre Rublev to advance in four sets despite my better judgment. And if you listen to the pod with Gil, you know I thought Chilich was a particularly bad matchup for Daniil Medvedev. I just think Rublev has more juice and is going to be able to expose the lack of elite movement for Marin Chilich on clay at this point. This is maybe the biggest match of Andre Rublev's career as well, just this opportunity to get to the semifinals. And he will be feeling the pressure certainly as the favorite. And given he's the highest seed remaining in that bottom half of the draw, I'm going to take Rublev. I'm going to take Rude. I don't feel particularly good about it. I think both of those matches go... I could see Rude winning in uh, Rude winning in straight sets, but I think both of tomorrow's matches go four sets. I'm going to take the higher seed after what was a day, I suppose, the two underdogs in Nadal and Zverev. Tough to call them underdogs, but the two underdogs ultimately advanced. But again, that's where things stand right now in the men's singles draw, and what a Tuesday it was of quarterfinal action. Hopefully that action and that level of play continues into tomorrow's matches as well. Of course, as I promised at the start, I did not talk about the women's singles draw here on this show. I'm going to record a separate show to talk all things golf, Sviantec, Pagula, Trevisan, you name it. We'll discuss it on that mini break podcast as well as we try to play catch up and keep all of you listeners in the loop on everything happening at the 2022. To French Open, of course. If you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at Cracked Rackets. You want to follow or message me directly, I am at AL Gruskin. A shout out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f- of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. A shout out, as well, to our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all that said, for our fantastic super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel. 
Basketball Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. We'll talk to you all soon. Thanks, everyone. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.